I grew up in partly in L.A. I was in Watts and in Compton and then Inglewood, California. And uh, my mother and I were together at that time. And then they separated. And my mother moved back to Bakersfield where her parents were. And all of her, you know, extended family, immediate family was all in Bakersfield. So she went back home and... Uh, I had a sister, my elder sister, and me at that time. Of course, I had two other siblings later. But uh, uh, we were, uh, I would say, on state aid. Back then, they called it welfare. And so that was assisting my mother while she was going back to school. Uh, so she was, you know, we were in, in that type of housing. They, had, they didn't have... Uh, the kind of structures they have today, but it was, uh, we called it the projects. So I grew up in the projects and which is the poor part of town and it's an isolated area. And that's where all your impoverished people lived. And, uh, uh, after we moved from LA to, to, uh, Bakersfield, we were in the projects in Bakersfield. I went to uh, Potomac elementary school and then to Lincoln junior high. And at Lincoln, I discovered, you know, my athletic ability. And I was in three sports, actually four. I played baseball, track, uh, basketball, and football. And with no prior training, I just got out there and, you know, <laughs> with my, with, with I, whatever I had on my bare feet or, or tennis shoes, uh, hand-me-down tennis shoes and what have you, <laughs> and, uh, and discovered I had, had uh athletic ability and at that point uh, I also felt like that was my ticket out of the projects and uh, perhaps even going go to college uh, so that was how I figured because I there was no way the family was going to pay for that I mean the extended family true enough you know then I played in junior high and then high school and I was a, a letterman in all all four sports and uh, was uh, all state and all conference in football, basketball, and track. Got quite a few scholarship offers in all in three of the sports. I didn't in baseball. I would have had to do triple A, uh, which is another story I'll tell you about where I got to meet uh, someone who went on and did play professional football in USC and and had a profound effect uh, impact on me in terms of schools that I selected. Uh, but anyway, my high school coach, uh, Paul Briggs, um, was a coach, as I mentioned, in, in Colorado, in a Colorado high school. And he and Eaton knew each other from the military. Uh, they both served, I believe, in the Navy. And both were officers. And Eaton was coaching high school in Wyoming, I think in Casper, where you are, <laughs> I think. And it was either Casper or, or Cheyenne, one of the two. He was a coach there. And my coach, high school coach, uh, was coaching in a uh, high school in Colorado. But anyway, they knew each other. They played against each other. And they became friends. And my high school coach, uh, he was uh, sending all of his best players over to Wyoming convincing us not to go other places uh, if we were going to play football because a lot of the guys were multi-sports players as well. Now, had you ever been to Wyoming before? I had never been out of California before oh. uh, and, until until I, I flew, out, flew off to uh, Wyoming. So uh, Wyoming was what the Marion brothers were the ones just before me that, got, that went to Wyoming. Jerry and and uh, and his brother, uh, they both went to. They were there ahead of me, Dave and Jerry Marion. And one got shot in college dorm and got paralyzed and then later died uh, in the dorm at Wyoming. And uh, but they, that's a story you can kind of look up. But <laughs> you know, and the Wyoming people that follow football are aware of them because they were both starters. But uh, they had an influence on me coming there because I was a running back as well. And uh, 
coach came over to the house, uh, Coach Briggs, and he said, I know you're going through trying to determine where you want to go to school. Uh, what are your thoughts? So I shared with him my track scholarships. I, was, I had opportunity to go to Cornell, uh, which is I was leaning towards. And then uh, I had an opportunity to go to Stanford, uh, UCLA, USC, you know, the, the California schools. Uh, then there were some, some other offers that I had to uh, HBCUs. Uh, and then I shared with him the basketball scholarships, offers, the, and then obviously the football offers that had started coming in. Some of them he was aware of. And uh, Wyoming was not on that list, by the way. <laughs> so, but but I was leaning towards going to to uh, USC, and I was thinking about going to USC or UCLA, one of the two, uh, because they were California schools at that time. They were, they still are. They're competitors now on a national basis. So, and certainly in the conference, they're always. It's one or the other. And then Stanford most recently has come on the scene, uh, you know, in terms of football, but they were there. Tiger Woods, you know, played at Stanford and he lived down the street from where I, you know, I'm at now in Cyprus. And so, you know, a lot of, quite a, quite a few, uh, opportunities. So he said, well, have you ever thought about this? And he gave me the analogy. You can be a big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond. I said, what's that mean, coach? <laughs> he said, if you go to USC, you're going to sit on the bench until your junior year because they got, they have so many athletes that come in there. Uh, it's not that you're not good, but they're always, you know, somebody better and you'll be waiting your turn before you get into, you know, the varsity and actually on the roster and start playing. So two years of your college career, you'll be sitting on the bench, even though you, you have made the team because they wouldn't recruit you if they didn't think it was a great op good opportunity for you to, to be there. And he said, if you, and if you go to a smaller college, you'll be a starter either partially because they don't do full freshman year games uh, or schedules, and uh, you may even start, you know, or start playing uh, on the varsity in your freshman year, but certainly by your sophomore year. So that's what I mean, you know, and with your talent and what you're doing, you know, you can be more visible in terms of your contributions to the team uh, if you're in a smaller college. And I said, well, give me an example. And he said, well, uh, you know that a lot of the guys before you have gone off to Colorado, University of Colorado, to Arizona, uh, to Wyoming. I said, yeah, I said some of them, you know, because, you know, Bakersfield's a kind of a small niche community as far as athletes are concerned. And we see each other and they have athletic clubs and all that kind of stuff uh, where they're in the city and they still have them. And uh, they give out what's called the Harry Coffee Awards. So I received... Uh, one in each of the sports and they put it on a little blanket and they post them in the athletic club. And so, you know, it's a big deal. So we all kind of knew each other, you know, even though we were in different sports or you I certainly knew the people that were in the sport you were in. So I said, well, short and a long story. Uh, he said, uh, Dave and Jerry went to university in Wyoming and then he listed a bunch of other guys prior to them that went to university of Wyoming. And I said, well, why would I consider that? And he said, well, uh, I know the coach, obviously. He said, otherwise I wouldn't be sending the guys at your caliber to that school. But I think it's worth at least uh, getting, you know, they're going to send you a letter of intent. I said, oh, they are? And he says, yes. I said, okay. He said, and I think you should do the college visit, the campus visit, and then decide whether you want to go there or or you want to go to USC. Mm. And I said, okay. So that led to me uh, getting the opportunity. The letter came. 
I I uh, didn't sign the letter of intent, uh, but I did say, you know, precondition that I'd like to visit the campus. So they arranged it, flew me from Bakersfield to L.A., and then out of LAX, uh, Los Angeles Air- International Airport, they flew me up to to Wyoming. Uh, actually, I flew into Denver and did a connecting flight <laughs> to Wyoming. And so I had never been to Denver. Of course, you know, it was a big airport. It obviously, was, so was uh, LA, LAX. But um, thinking, okay, so I, I I still don't know Wyoming. You know, what, what is that like? So then they put me on a prop jet. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, okay. I wonder if this thing's got propellers on it. And I'm going <laughs> to be flying to where? And they said you'll be flying into... Uh, I think we flew into Casper and uh, some little field between Casper and Laramie. They didn't have an airport right in the city. It was outside somewhere in between there. And I didn't know, obviously, geographically where that was or how that was laid out. But anyway, as I'm flying in, all of a sudden I leave skylines and what have you to just hills and plains (laughs) and i'm thinking where am i going (laughs) you know and so and next thing i know they're talking about prepare for landing which is you know make sure your seat belts and i'm thinking prepare for landing i look out the window and it was like one aisle and two seats on one side and one seat on the other side so i had a window seat (laughs) so no matter what you know, and I'm looking and I'm looking and I, they were, they're landing and there was nothing. And I'm just saying, when I say nothing, I mean, I'm used to buildings and streets and, you know, all kinds of stuff, but yeah, freeways and, you know. And so anyway, we land in this little airport and uh, some guys came out to, <laughs> to meet me. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> you know. I wonder what this is. This is gonna. The focus must really be on on football here. (laughs) (laughs) There is is nothing, you know. And think back. That was in the '60s, so it's less uh, then than it is now, and it still isn't much there now. But you know, by comparison, there's no. It's not a fair comparison to LA or any of the, you know, even Denver. I mean, you know. So, but anyway, so that was my initial shock was that I'm flying into, you know, to me it's I consider a remote area or an isolated community. Um, and then, you know, as we're driving from the airport, you know, to the city itself, into the city, wasn't a long drive, but, you know, to me, you know, just looking around and, and kind of quiet. They were talking, of course, but I was half paying attention because I was looking around out the window and uh, we ended up in Laramie <laughs> and over by the campus. So the biggest thing on, in the city was the was the university, you know. So and when they said we're in downtown Laramie, I'm thinking this is downtown. <laughs> so hey, you know, one street. <laughs> you know, so I think they got three or four now, but you know, back in one main street, and that was it. So that was my. That was my initial reaction and and uh, experience flying into the city. Didn't didn't take my view. Just kind of raised more questions than provided any answers about where I'm at. <laughs> you know, what am I getting into? Yeah, Bakersfield had a robust black community. You would have been around a lot of other black people, and then you get to Laramie. Besides the football players and the athletes, were there any other black people? Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what the composition of the population was at that time. I didn't do any research, you know, on the city. Of course, those are things I would do today. But at that time, um, being an 18 year old, you know, I thought, you know, hey, you know, I'm I'm just enjoying the experience and the opportunity because I was, in essence, in my opinion, living my dream, which was to play sports to get an education and I was certainly on my way so I didn't really 
focus in on the on the demographics of the city and certainly you know whether they were blacks or not didn't matter because i wasn't you know racially you know focused or, or or restricted in terms of my thought process until i actually started school there after i signed a letter of intent you know uh and, and just think about it, you know the football team even though there were other blacks and other you know ethnic groups on our football team in high school because bakersfield is diverse you know so there was you know, Hispanics, Asians, you know, whites, obviously, blacks, everything on the football team. Um, I just thought that would be a natural reflection of, you know, what would be there. And then it being a university, my thought was, you know, uh, just for a fleeting moment, because it certainly didn't factor into my decision to go there, uh, that there would be diversity as well. And matter of fact, the word diversity wasn't even being used back then, but I thought there would be, it'd be multicultural, put it that way. And, and, uh, so that wasn't an issue initially. And, uh, then after I got there, everything was white. All, the majority of everybody I saw was white. It snowed, so the ground was white. <laughs> you know, everybody in class was white, you know. The only time I saw anybody that looked like me was was uh, when we went to practice at football. And then even with that, there weren't there weren't 14 of us there <laughs> when I went there. You know, they, they were recruiting. Eaton was an anomaly because uh, back then, uh, probably two, maybe... I would say even three African Americans on a football team would be a high number back in the, in the sixties. And, you know, normally it'd be all white teams. So you didn't see, you know, I wasn't expectation to have a whole bunch of black folks, but we had, you know, that he was, he was recruiting five a year. And that was kind of like, and I didn't know that. I don't know if that was a quota or. Uh, or limit, or I don't. I never discussed with the coaching staff or the team, you know, how they came up with their recruitment strategy. But anyway, it turned out that there were, you know, uh, enough guys around that I felt comfortable when I got to practice, <laughs> and then was a little bit uncomfortable, but at, not really because even in high school, you know, the majority of my classes were were white white students and the majority of this country was white so it wasn't uh you know anything discomforting about that either so just just an observation you know when it go around uh outside of our school that like i said everything was white so uh that was kind of our our kind of our refuge was uh was the gridiron you know going to the to practice and or uh, playing in the game. Mm. And what about camaraderie with the other football players? Did everybody get along pretty well? Yeah, I actually, my, initially in my freshman and sophomore year, the, the guy I would consider that I spent most of my time with was a guy named Ed Sinakowski. And Ed Sinakowski was the quarterback. And Obviously, me being a, a, a running back when I went there, and then they moved me to a receiving position, so I was called flanker back. And back then, it was a, I sat in a slot. I wasn't on the end like a split end or a tight end, but I was off off line a little bit, kind of in the backfield, but on the line, not in the backfield. And what that means is I could I was a running back that could catch. Because a lot of running backs, if you throw them a pass, they drop it. <laughs> you know, ninety percent of the time they just don't don't have good hands. But I did so because I, I played a number of positions, when I, both defense, offense. I even kicked point afters after touchdowns. I did a lot of stuff uh, when I was in high school. So I was more of a uh, all around uh, athlete in the in the football arena. So uh, Eddie Eddie and I were were close. And then uh, in my sophomore year, uh, during spring ball, Eddie and a couple of other guys on the team were on a fishing trip in Wyoming, and the boat capsized. And Eddie couldn't swim. 
and Eddie drowned. Oh. And and so uh, they couldn't save him. Uh, and a lot of people, either on the bank or in the boat, obviously were trying to, they didn't realize he was gone because he never came up once the boat capsized. But he was a, he was a hell of a, a quarterback and a personal friend. And by the way, I think it's his cousin. His name is Ed Sinikowski too. Same as him. And now he's in, he's in, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Took a job there, but he was up in that area, and and we got to meet each other, of course, years later, because I didn't know about him, you know, when I was playing. But uh, he 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 made a point of reaching out to me, and we've been staying in contact over the years. Uh, but he got in touch with me uh, after we did our initial reunion, so he saw everybody. But uh, obviously, Eddie had told his parents about me and his family members not just from the perspective of, you know, being on the team, but also being in his inner circle. Oh, that's wonderful. He was the closest guy to me, but the black athletes, we were all, you know, cordial with each other and around each other, but, you know, I didn't have any any buddies, so to speak. And my roommate, uh, John Plummer, he was from Teaneck, New Jersey. He's one of the, the... five that were recruited in my class that was actually at Brigham Young but he quit and went back to New Jersey. His father was very wealthy and uh, they owned a a series of gas stations called Sinclair with a dinosaur uh, logo on the on the on the billboard. Oh wow. uh, So him and uh, Laverne Dickerson I'd say Laverne and I were close and Laverne quit. He was a defensive back uh, after the BYU thing, he quit and went back to uh, New York. He was from upstate New York. Uh, he was probably the most dynamic defensive back that the University of Wyoming ever had, and and he quit. And so, uh, and then there was another guy named Rick Marshall. He was the the, the fifth person out of our group because Tony McGee, myself and them, but uh, Rick Marshall, he quit as well. So it could have been the Black 17 if those three guys hadn't hadn't decided to, to leave, but they but they actually quit. And they had options, because Rick came from an upper middle class family, uh, and Laverne as well, so they, uh, they all uh, decided they were gonna go somewhere else, they weren't gonna stay. So, but they were around through the 69, because that's all in 69 when we were going to do the protest. They, they were in some of the photos and stuff that, you know, ended up in Sports Illustrated. Art Shea was the photographer for them. And so I have all of the, I've got 69 original copies of the pictorial story that uh, Art Shea did. And we were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So... I have that one, and that one's a more popular one because I think 11 of us, 10 or 11 of us, matter of fact, I'm looking at it right here in front of me, uh, we're in we're in that photo, and uh, I got the complete series. He had to pay for it. <laughs> 20 grand is what he was charging. Oh, wow. It's probably worth more now, but, you know, and I've shown them to different people, so we're supposed to be considered for induction into the Smithsonian Institute the African American Museum, and I'm gonna put them on consignment there, so that they're not doing newspaper clippings and what have you. They've got actual, real time, behind the scenes, all the way through game day, photos from Sports Illustrated, one of their award-winning photographers, Art Shea. So before you guys decided to get together and talk to Eaton, do you want to walk me through just what prompted that and the previous BYU game? Because when I was studying, doing my homework on this, certain uh, sources were saying that this protest was in response to black men not being allowed in the priesthood. But then other stories, it's more about that game. So which one coming from you, what really you're saying that was the catalyst? It was the game, not necessarily yeah. the religious aspects yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, well, keep in mind, there was, I, I, the original five that actually played at BYU, there was only two of us left. 
when the Black 14 was formed, there were only two out of the 14 that was actually at BYU. So there's some footage that you've probably seen where we're standing around the Black Student Union talking about what happened. And I'm one of the guys that are speaking, and Tony McGee is the other one, but I was doing most of the talking at the time. And so, meaning during the, <laughs> the 1969 era. Uh, and the guys that talk about the priesthood, they weren't even on the team when we were played at BYU. Matter of fact, none of the other 12 guys were on the team. So they weren't there. And so that was kind of the mysteries that Phil White had was, how did you convince them to join you guys? And then you got all of the black athletes that were on, you know, upper class, you know, freshmen, et cetera, all together and became known as, because we didn't name ourselves the Black 14. Uh, so when some people like Mel Hamilton talks about the priesthood, well, his son's a Mormon, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and nobody else's didn't have any sons. <laughs> you know, so, and he had gone to the military and come back. So for him, it had a different meaning and different ones would, would say what they thought. But the LDS church, their view at that time was that when blacks died, since we were cursed, first of all, we were descendants of either Ham or Cain, depending on what story you read. But if you go to to read the uh, their Book of Mormon, then you will find that, you know, the original version, not the edited one that you have out there now, but uh, they believed that we were descendants of Ham, who was a son of Noah, who saw his father in the nude, and in the Bible it says discovered, which means you saw him in the nude, and he was cursed, but he was a dark complected one in that family. So all the descendants of Ham were cursed, right? So what was the curse? The curse was when we die, we cannot ascend to heaven. So we go to purgatory, period. We don't get to go to heaven. If If you're Jewish, you go to purgatory for whatever sins you committed, and then after you finish your time there, then you go on to heaven no matter what. Well, black folks didn't get that option. So so when we died, we didn't go to heaven because we were cursed. And in life, before death, we could not become a, a priest in the Mormon church. The highest position in life, according to the Book of Mormon, was to be a priest. But because we were cursed, we were considered the lowest order of life, which is back to the football game. They had a picture of a black man and a gorilla facing each other. And I never knew what, what, what did that mean? You know, if you're walking into the locker room, you know, that was posted on the wall, walking oh. into the locker room. And I'm looking at what the hell, you know. And of course, the next day on the Salt Lake cover of the Salt Lake Tribune, it said, Brigham Young washes evil off the field. And then it goes into this whole narrative about uh, the Mormons, their belief system. And since we were cursed, we were the lowest order of life, lower than a primate. And the next lowest order above us was a female. So females couldn't go in the priesthood either. But so shorten the long story, we could only become priests, but we were banned from that because we were lowest life. And that's where some of the guys said, oh, you can't be in the priesthood. Oh, that did it for me, you know, or whatever. So we just told the whole story and different guys of the 14 had different reasons. But I tell you, Tony McGee and I did not because we were in that game and it emanated from one thing, the behavior of the players on the BYU team. And in my opinion, uh, them bringing their religious views on the playing field or what, what we were calling the gridiron. What place did that have to do with the game? It had no place in the football arena. And whatever they believed, they believed. You know, it didn't bother me one way or the other. They have the right, you know, amendment rights in the Constitution to freedom of religion to believe whatever they want to believe, as long as they don't impose it on others. And I felt that they were doing that by bringing their religious views on the on the uh, playing field. And then to have a headline saying, Brigham Young washes evil off the field. You know, what was the evil? It was only five of us, but they turned the sprinklers on the whole football team. 
So the whole football team had to run through the water to get to the locker room, which is on the other side of the football field. We were there mm-hmm. cheering after the game because we won and turn around and the players aren't over there because we normally shake hands, you know, even if you lose. Uh, and that didn't happen. So that prompted the whole investigative, you know, thinking about, you know, at least from McGee and I, and the other three guys I mentioned, Laverne and and uh, Rick Marshall and John, my roommate, we all talked about it. And then as we talked about it, they decided they were going to quit, you know, because we were playing BYU again the next year. And, you know, in that game, the like I said in one of the other venues that I've heard, you know, it was commonplace to be gouged, you know, in the groin area or called niggas or, you know, when you get tackled and you're on the ground and that kind of stuff was commonplace. White, majority of all the other teams were white anyway. And there was a lot of pushback that, you know, blacks were being given the opportunity to play, you know. So we've been referred to as the Jackie Robinsons of football, you know, and, and even though he was in baseball, but, you know, who was, who was opening up the gates for blacks and college football? Well, they assigned that to us, you know, after all of the other stuff that happened, uh, during that time period. So, so that was, uh, we all stood around in the student union and talking about what we experienced and what the Mormons believed. And then Willie Black, uh, who was the head of the Black Student Alliance on campus, uh, he was a graduate student there getting his, working on his PhD. And uh, he gave more background about the Mormon faith and the religion. Matter of fact, he's the one that found me the uh, copy of the Salt Lake Tribune's headline. It wasn't on the sports page, it was on the front page about Brigham Young washing the evil off the field. You know, them imposing their issue in terms of of, uh, African Americans, in my opinion, that's, I mean, they can believe whatever they want to believe. I mean, that that has no impact on us or me or the race personally until they start imposing their views and their will on others. And just in my feeling was, uh, and still is to this day, that those types of issues have no place in the football arena, period. It's not It's not a platform for uh, any political or social is- issues. I, I just, you know, I just think football is football and let's just play football. And, you know, they tried to compare us to, uh, Kaepernick, and they wanted him to do a voiceover on one of the, I think it was ESPN, and they asked if, you know, and I said no, because his, what his views were, he was using football to address social issues that had nothing to do with football, and we were doing just the reverse, we were saying those social issues have nothing to be, don't belong on the gridiron, and so, you know, I guess we were using a platform to say, keep your religious views to yourself, you know, believe whatever you want to believe, just don't bring it on the football field. And everybody that went to BYU wasn't Mormon. And that was the other thing, you know, so I wasn't sure how the dynamics on the campus worked or, you know, how they recruited or what they did or what they told their athletes. And it was irrelevant. Well, the only thing that was relevant to me at the time was how it impacted us in that game and how we felt in that game. You know, a lot of people will respond to what people do. A lot of people will respond to what people say. But everybody responds to how somebody else makes you feel. The feeling was not acceptable to me. It wasn't comfortable to me. And it was something that couldn't be ignored. So we beat them. And later, Eaton said, hey, go out there and beat them with your black skins. Well, coach, that was the locus of the issue to begin with. If we weren't black, then it wouldn't have been an issue. If we weren't black, you know, uh, this never would have occurred. So going out and beating them with our black skin isn't stopping them from, you know, the stuff that happens when they get tackled. And by the way, Eaton wasn't there either because it wasn't a varsity game. And so that's why we wanted to go and talk to him 
was to tell him what we experienced. And hey, by the way, some of your coaching staff can attest to what happened because they had to run through the water as well. Mm-hmm. And they, and so, you know, that was why, for me, that's why I wanted to and was supportive of going over there and speaking to him to say, hey, coach, you weren't there. Here's what happened. And here's what we decided to do amongst ourselves with wear these armbands so that there's a visual other than our black skin um, method of demonstration that we're not happy with, you know, their views being brought on the playing field. Is this okay? And if he said yes, then we would have wore them and played in the game. And then that would have been one of the highlights as we beat them again. Because <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were one of the top teams. I mean, we were, we were bowl-bound again, heading to a bowl. And uh, we probably would have had an undefeated season because I think we were one of the best teams, that, according to him at that time, that he had ever had. And they'd been to two bowls, at least while I was there, Sun Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Uh, so I'm just saying that you know, we never got that opportunity to share that with him. And some of the members of his coaching staff, I'm sure, told him, you know, at, prior to coming over there or certainly afterwards, you know, what, what we were really trying to do. But we never got a chance to do that, so. Huh. Yeah, so. That's why some of the guys thought about the Mormon can't be a priest and what have you. I could care less, me personally, whether you're a priest or or, you know, a patron in the, in the, in the church. It didn't matter to me one way or the other. So I had a different view and that's why, you know, if you, if you poll the guys, different ones had different reasons, but we were telling everybody in the student union and then these guys decided they were going to join us and they didn't have to. So we also caveated it. Um, McGee did, you know, verbally that, Hey, some of you have family, some of you, you know, may not agree with our position. So if you don't join us, then we're not going to hold it against you. And then obviously three of the guys went back on the team after getting kicked off and eating off opening the opportunity. So Don Meadows and Ted, Ted Williams and, and John Griffith all went back and asked for their scholarships back, you know? And so, he was right. I mean, McGee was right that everybody didn't, you know, see it the same way and had different reasons for why they took that position. So there was no consensus uh, other than we were going to protest and that we agreed to wear the armbands. That was it amongst ourselves before we went over there. It would just be so painful in hindsight, leaving that game and having been treated so poorly, just disrespected as a fellow athlete. How do you deal with that today? Well, today, of course, I'm way, <laughs> I'm 50 years older, and so 50 plus years older, and have, have lived a lot of life, and, and our country has changed and evolved and, and revolved. There's been revolutions along with the evolution in our country. You know, keep in mind, you know, Kennedy was killed in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr. in the 60s, Malcolm X in the 60s. I mean, so a lot, a lot of, a lot of things happened in this country uh, that have shaped the way things are viewed and how things are experienced. And you know, we've had a African American president of the United States. We've got a black female vice president of the United States. Uh, we've had you know blacks at the Supreme Court level, and we're in all levels throughout, in totally integrated in the American system, both um, mentally and physically. And so to think about it in reflection, uh, what we experienced was time specific and relevant to the time that we were in, in that era of our country's development. And I'm very proud of the fact that for whatever reason, each one of those gentlemen decided to join us. Uh, they joined us. And it wasn't just, you know, two or three people, you know, uh, trying to have a voice and expressing, at least we had an opportunity to uh, begin to have a dialogue 
which we thought we were going to have. Instead, we got a monologue from from Eaton. Uh, but you know, today I I have no regrets, and I wasn't angry then, <laughs> so I'm certainly not angry now. And I looked at life a little bit different from you know most. Uh, even today, amongst our the group, but we're all different. And I saw it as it was a life-changing experience, and it was meant to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. And the universe intended everything that happened to happen, just the way it happened, and not one thing different. And the only thing I needed to do would be prepare for the blessings or the gifts that I was going to receive as a result. So. You know, I went on and I have, you know, four master's degrees. I have my, you know, obviously my undergrads. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, you know, worked for two Fortune 500s, General Motors. I uh, was part of the first 10 people to name, launch, and roll Lexus out worldwide for Toyota. I became a vice president there. I uh, was one of the first vice pre- African-American vice presidents for Toyota and in the automotive industry. Uh, had a lot of firsts in terms of my corporate positions on my on my executive track, both at General Motors and as well as uh, as well as at Toyota and Lexus. And now I'm a, an executive consultant and coach. So, you know, I just, you know, have blessed with my health and my family. And those things would have all been different had that not happened. My whole trajectory would have been different because I would have been in the NFL and who knows what was going to happen going forward. Even though I did try to go back and be a walk-on and I was told that I was a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker and and at one point Dallas Cowboys was going to give me an opportunity but uh, I wasn't going to be drafted. Uh, so I was coming in with caveats, so I decided, and I went to camp, by the way. They practice here in California in Thousand Oaks at Cal Lutheran College. They still do every year. They do the exhibition season there. And uh, Landry was the coach back then. And so I thought, you know, I, was, I had an opportunity to play, but I could make as much in the automotive industry as they were paying, would pay me on the football team. So why would I do that, you know, and and be part of that team? And back then it was Starbuck and Bob Hayes and uh, Renfro, and you know it would have been me. So I, I, you know, I would have made my way into the starting lineup. Joe Williams, one of our Black Fourteen, he went there, so he was there already uh, from Wyoming. So you know, I just, you know, there was a. And I think Jay Berry tried out with him too later, but you know, because he was a, a year behind us. Uh, so I uh, I have no regrets. I think it, you know, and if I could do something, if there's something that was a void, is my conversation with Lloyd Eaton post what happened at Wyoming, and uh, and uh, and the conversation would have been, Coach, why? What was going on with you? What pressures were you under? What were the other coaches in the in the league and the conference and nationally doing because you had all these black players on your football team and they didn't and it wasn't a popular thing in those days? What, what, what pressures were you under? So I'm not just going to take it literally that you felt we were defying you because... Uh, we walked in the field house with black armbands and you had told Joe the night before that that was an object of your concern and, and, and grounds for, for termination or being kicked off the team. We didn't know that. And so I don't think that was all that there was to it that you didn't even give us an opportunity to have a voice and say anything. It was, you know, anytime somebody tried to say something, always shut up or sit down or, you know, and then he made his, said what he had to say and then walked out. So, and then we were just sitting there dumbfounded. I'd want to have that conversation. Not only because his coach and my coach were friends and it was a different dialogue at that time to even get me to come there, you know. And, you know, if I had listened to my, my family friend and mine, Mike Garrett, who Mike Garrett 
you know, was a star at USC and then played for the Rams the first time the Rams were in L.A., you know, and so I'm just saying that, you know, there was a, and then he became a athletic director at USC later, and if I had listened to Mike, you know, he was a running back, he played baseball too, and I'd have been at USC. <laughs> so, so when you go back to all the wouldas and couldas and, you know, it doesn't make any sense because this is where you are, and I'm just thankful and grateful that everything that happened happened. Even right now, Kobe, you and I having this conversation, we wouldn't be having it if things had just one thing had been different. What uh, the coach giving us a chance to say what we came over there for, and for him to say what he did, go out there and beat him with your black skin, but you don't need those armbands. If he had said that and you're still on the team, but he walked in and said the very first thing, save you a lot of time and trouble. As of now, you're all through. And in January, you can start looking for somewhere else to go. And maybe the Morgans and Gramlin states will put up with this, but not here at Wyoming. And you're defying me. Most of you come from split homes and broken families and don't know who your father is. And I'm the only father image that most of you even know. If he hadn't said all of that, and you hear I'm quoting it because it's reciting it out of my head. I'm not reading the script. <laughs> so those things are still indelibly etched in my mind, and it should be. Some things you don't need to forget. You just use them as platforms to understand when you do your self-inventory of things not to do. They're lessons learned. And so, again... I have no long-winded way, as usual, Guillermo, <laughs> uh, answering a question that, to me, no question is just simply yes or no. I love it. Yeah, as an interviewer, it's great. <laughs> Makes my job a lot easier. Sometimes I'll ask someone what I think is a profound question, and they just give me like two two words. I'm like, okay. Is there anything else you feel about this? So, no, I think it's great. And it's you're so right. It's like some of these moments that are our greatest moments of persecution can either make or break a person and it definitely sounds like the former happened to you mm-hmm. did were you worried about your teammates did it go differently i'm sure everybody after that you know went their different ways and i just wonder if at that point you were kind of remorseful or even had some sort of sadness about what would happen and oh my gosh if we hadn't done this this wouldn't have happened of course in hindsight you made history, it, but I just wonder about anxieties about, oh God, like maybe some of these people don't have anywhere to go, that kind of thing. <clears throat> well, you know, it, you know that's, a, that's a great question because we're more introspective now and more reflective now than we ever were before when we have to go back and like I use the term self-inventory and reflect on you know, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? What could I have said differently or, or said, you know, in a better way? And when you start looking at impacts on lives, some of us didn't really know the histories and stories behind the other guys' lives. We weren't that close where we, even now, I mean, we've got, we formed the Black 14 LLC. We formed the Black 14 uh, entertainment LLC because they're getting ready to make this movie and this eight-part series uh, on Showtime and then we did this thing with Jonathan Hopp you know with Dr. Harry Edwards who was the guy that was you know with the the Tommy John Carlos and Tommy Smith that raised their fists at the Olympics you know he was uh and so they've already filmed it it just hasn't aired yet I think it's going to air this month uh, Black History Month, uh, but and that was you know a Showtime piece. Uh, so I think when I think about Jim Isaac, whose wife killed him, or Don Meadows, whose brother was shot in the back of the head in a movie theater in Denver uh, because he was with a white woman who happened to be his wife, but the guy who shot him didn't know that, and then Don dies, uh, or. Earl Lee, who was an educator in Baltimore, Maryland. And, you know, I was out there with the Congressional Black Caucus set on their board, which is an organization for all of the black congressmen and women nationally 
But when I was at Toyota and Lexus, I served on their foundations board, uh, which is a whole nother story uh, that helped get Obama elected, et cetera. But Earl, you know, he dies. And so his son is there today. Uh, even though I think Earl stayed and got his degree, finished graduating, because he was an upperclassman. Mel got stayed. I don't know if Mel graduated. I think he did, because he stayed there and got, you know, did what went on. John went back on the team, and he certainly got his degree, because he showed it in the ESPN video. Uh, and he stayed, you know, in Denver and Wyoming area. And then I look at everybody else that I hear about and that I've now since gotten closer to. Uh, there's probably out of the 14, um, I'd say four guys whose lives were other than the ones that died. But even before their deaths, you know, things were had moved in different directions for everybody. And yeah, every everybody, because I think everybody could have been pro-bound or would have had an opportunity on a professional team. We were just that good. Uh, and all of our lives would have been different if Eaton had just given us a chance to say what we came over there to say. And nobody said, uh, and they accused me of that, hey, you know, I'm not going to, even if he, if I can't wear this armband, I want Eaton fired. You know, I'm going to wear, wanna, you know, so either I'm wearing an armband or I'm not going back, even if he let us back on the team. Nobody is. Nobody said that. Nobody said anything because we didn't get a chance to. So, you know, and then so I listened to the administrators and what have you. And I was I was in the depositions. I was at the court hearings. And there was another pivotal point, which was the attorney that represented us. Joe Williams and I were being deposed. I think we were in Cheyenne. I think we were in Cheyenne or Casper. But anyway. It's a matter of record, so you can look up the deposition but and the court records. And the judge wanted to know what the members of the Black 14 thought about the offer that was put on the table. And I looked over at Joe, and he was being deposed. And what offer? was my thought. What offer? And the assistant attorney who was a local guy along with attorney William Waterman who was the primary attorney out of Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, It was a civil rights brought him out there because he was a constitutional lawyer. And so he was representing us. So Willie Black was part of that and Dr. Harry Edwards and and as well as Bill Cosby, Uh, regardless of what you think of him now. But they were the one that had a special dinner and then they got the funding and that's how we got that attorney. But we were waiting for that attorney, for William Waterman to, to show up at the court. And they were asking the representing attorneys, you know, what was the reaction? And they said, well, you're gonna have to ask attorney Waterman because we didn't, we didn't pose the question to the members of the 14. So I'm still sitting there thinking, what question? <laughs> what offer? And then finally, Bill Waterman shows up and the judge asked him, that was the first thing because he didn't want to go through the hearing and for us to, you know, after the depositions and what have you, uh, there was going to be a hearing, preliminary hearing that day. And he asked Waterman in front of us, attorney, what was the response or the reaction to the offer that was placed before the members of the 14? And he said, I never shared it with him. And I'm still thinking, what, 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 what did he share? <laughs> you know, and it was what he had said, what the offer was. And then the judge asked him, well, why? And he said, I didn't think it was in their best interest. So as their attorney, I decided not to pose the question and just go forward with the action as has been filed. And so what had been posed was, they were going to let all of us come back on the team that wanted to come back on the team. They were gonna drop the case. They wanted the case to be dropped and they were gonna fully reinstate all the players that wanted to come back, not selectively pick who we wanted, who he wanted and didn't want. And Coach Eaton had agreed that instead of him being part of the interview process, that the recruiting coach would be the one to talk to each player. So whoever recruited you, that's who you were going to be in front of 
and they were going to be talking to you about coming back on the team or not. And they were sitting in Laramie waiting for the phone call and they were going to carpool it down to the court to start the conversation before we went any further with the suit. And we were never asked. And so in my opinion, it would have been a very different outcome had that been presented to the members of the 14. And there were no caveats and no conditions, you know, are tied to it where, you know, either you, you want to play football here and finish your education here and move on with your life or you don't. And you want to stay with this action, which, you know, you have been dismissed and we had till the end of the year to get out anyway or come back individually and ask for your scholarship. So to me, when I reflect on how our lives could have been different and how it might have impacted any of the other guys, we were all impacted by that lack of communication, that lack of judgment, uh, that our attorney exercised and we were never aware of. So to me, that was, and then, and guess what? And we didn't have any post meeting where we all, we all huddled and, and Joe and I said, hey, here's something that happened that you guys ought to know. Some of the guys are just finding out about it now, 50 plus years later, that that was even an option mm. because we weren't close enough that, you know, we left and we all stayed in touch and we all, you know, Phil White, if it wasn't for him, and at that time he was an editor uh here in Laramie over at the at the branding iron, your local newspaper. <laughs> uh he was a historian because he was there when we went to meet with the legislator legislatures and the president of the university and when Governor Hathaway flew in and sat around the table and talked to us, Phil White was sitting there. Phil White was, you know, kind of uh uh shadowing every single aspect of what we did as the editor and reporter there in town. Uh, so, and he's been still been that to this day. So we had to reach out to Phil White to find everybody. He kept in touch with everybody. We didn't keep in touch with each other. Wow. So, uh, other than that, other than, you know, Tony McGee, he was, he was uh, in my wedding. My first wife died of cancer. The lady I was married to when I was at Wyoming and mother of my two sons. I had three sons and my oldest son, he died when he was four years old. So back in that same time period, uh, I had a son and he died. But fast forward, Tony McGee and, and Lionel Grimes came to my wedding in Detroit. And I was in Detroit, Michigan at the time and Jay Barry was there too. Jay was supposed to be at the wedding as well. He was a local newscaster and I was a corporate manager at General Motors at the Pontiac division there in, in uh, Pontiac, Michigan and Detroit area. And other than those three guys, and then I saw Laverne Dickinson, who was one of the original five that was there. He came through there one time as a, a tennis coach with, with a couple of uh, young people that were on this tennis team. And they played in some e tournament that was there in Detroit. And we just happened to run into each other there. But other than that, there was a total disconnect with everybody else. I didn't know that, you know, what had happened with John Griffith and that the, the teachers on that campus, you know, were going to offer scholarships and pay for us to get our education. Uh, nobody contacted us. Nobody picked up the phone and said, hey, guys, here's something new, breaking news or nothing. So I don't have a lot of empathy for, you know, everybody's lives because I wasn't involved in them and didn't know what they were doing or not. Mm. And then to hear some of their stories posted, uh, then yes, I, I think that had either Bill Waterman, Attorney Waterman, uh, shared with us the, the option that we had, the offer that was on the table, lives would have been vastly improved. Had Coach Eaton allowed us to ask our question and then him give us the answer, which we were going to honor and respect because we honored and respected him, even though we, some of the guys didn't like him. <laughs> and listening to some of them, they had more problems with our team than they had with BYU. And I'm thinking, where's that coming from? 
you know, because I didn't experience what they experienced. So I guess the most the most moving thing was when my grandfather, when I first when it first happened, said to me, you know, Guillermo, I don't understand. You just got your head from under the white man's foot. Why would you take this stance? And I said, mm-hmm. Grandpa, I want more than my head from under his foot. I want my whole body. And then he looked at me and I said, I want to be in corporate America. I want to wear a white shirt and a tie. And I want to sit across a boardroom table. Never did I know all that was going to happen. <laughs> and it all happened. But that's what I said I wanted. And then when he gave me the stamp of approval, then we both cried. 